I'm Jennifer, the producer of Talking Pets, and I just want to take a moment to thank ExpressVPN for supporting our podcast. You probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. ExpressVPN works by making sure your internet service provider can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers, keeping your data safe and protected. Visit expressvpn.com feds and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Lintman. It was a week when the social fabric seemed to fray a little more each day, and by week's end was coming apart at the seams. The simple act of wearing a mask to guard against the virus became a hot point red-blue political dispute, which the president inflamed, disparaging masks as politically correct and taunting Joe Biden for wearing one. The firing of the State Department Inspector General grew more and more suspect as different reports emerged of possible misconduct by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The administration stood behind Pompeo, but announced yet another investigation into the Obama administration for unmasking Mike Flynn, which is not a crime. President Trump himself alleged, with zero proof, that TV host Joe Scarborough had murdered a staff member of his 20 years previous. Twitter appended a note suggesting Trump didn't have the facts right. Two days later, Trump produced a new executive order seeking to rein in Twitter and other media giants. By week's end, Minnesota was burning in the wake of another video of an African-American man, George Floyd, being slowly asphyxiated by a police officer while the entire country heard his moaning, I can't breathe. Demonstrations broke out in Minneapolis, giving way to lootings and curfews. And in the following two days after the taping of this episode, the fires spread to over 75 cities and by Monday morning, it was unclear when they would be contained. Today's episode you'll hear is taped on Friday, but in the two days since, we have put up on patreon.com slash talkingfeds, where we post exclusive material for supporters, three different segments speaking to aspects of the Minnesota mayhem. United States has not felt this dystopian for at least 50 years, and this week the nation's death toll from COVID-19 passed the 100,000 mark. So there's quite a bit to talk about and break down. We have an awesome panel here, consisting of two stalwart Talking Feds regulars and a very special first-time guest. First, Natasha Bertrand, whom I sometimes call Scoop for her phenomenal ability to get the news reports before anyone else, is Politico's national security correspondent. Previously, she was a staff writer for The Atlantic, covering national security and politics. 
She's also an NBC News and MSNBC contributor. Welcome back, Natasha. Thanks for having me. Nat Miller, a partner at the strategic advisory firm Vianovo, an MSNBC contributor and the previous director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. Thanks, as always, for being here, Matt. Good to be here. And Senator Barbara Boxer. We're thrilled to be able to welcome her. She served 34 years in the Congress, 10 in the House, and from 1992 to 2016 in the Senate, where she was a stalwart voice for progressive values and known for her deeply held positions on military spending, women's rights, the environment, and the Iraq War. In 2020, she became a co-chair of Mercury, a bipartisan strategy firm, and she has also, since leaving the Senate, written a book on her years in Congress, The Art of Tough, Fearlessly Facing Politics and Life. We're very honored to welcome her to Talking Feds. Thank you so much for joining Senator Boxer. Thank you so much. All right, let's start with Minneapolis where demonstrations and lootings continue to engulf the city. And the officer who put his knee to the neck of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, was taken into custody and charged with third-degree murder. And his other three officers involved in the incident are likely to face charges. I want to ask first, this is very hard to say because it's, you know, it's not a large statistical sampling, but does this whole episode and the reaction in communities across the country feel in some way linked to the virus? Well, I'll start it off. I think what we're seeing is that the virus has ripped off the Band-Aid that we occasionally put on, obscuring the underlying deep injustice in our society toward people of color. It's a never-ending cycle because of the prejudice, because of the problems, trying to get out of that cycle. And of course, you know, when I first came to the Senate, we had the Rodney King riot in Los Angeles. And all Rodney King, I get the chills when I think about it, said, can't we all get along? What an astute point. And we're just back to it. And I would like to say the difference is now and why I think it's even more painful and horrifying is I've served with five presidents at that time, starting with Reagan, ending with with Obama and everybody in between three Republicans, two Democrats, every president, when something like this would happen, would step out regardless of his party and say, we are better than this. We need to love each other and care about each other. And now we've got this ripping off of the Band-Aid with the coronavirus, which is your basic question, showing us how bad it is for people who have underlying conditions and who are those people? And now the economic hits, which are forcing a lot of people of color and others in the lower echelons economically of having to be facing a choice. Do I go back to work? Do I get sick? What do I do? How do I protect my kids? So we're hurting. So I've gone on and on, but I feel you hit my emotions with that. I think that's very well said. And Harry, I think that they're obviously very different problems, but the thing that feels so familiar about them is that in these two national crises, you have a, just a complete absence at times of any sort of federal leadership. And when the president does speak, he makes the problem worse because as in his handling of the coronavirus, his handling of the, this crisis in Minneapolis so far, he's used it to divide people coming out last night and, and talking about shooting looters. And then right as we taped this podcast, he came out and had a press conference that felt like the entire country was waiting for him to say something. He came out and talked about withdrawing from the WHO and left the the White House Rose Garden without saying a thing about what's happening on the the streets of Minnesota. And it's not just him. It goes on down through the administration. I, I think about the attorney general I worked for, Eric Holder, when 
the shooting in Ferguson happened in Ferguson, Missouri happened in 2014 and there was unrest in the streets, very similar to what's happening. He flew to Minnesota and announced that there would be a federal investigation and had the credibility with people in that community that the people knew there would be a fair, tough investigation that would get to the bottom of what happened and it helped calm the situation. There's nothing like that from the Justice Department right now. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's not simply a vacuum of leadership, it seems to me, from the president, but actually pouring fuel on the fire. This notion, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, he's provoking the mayor. The mayor and governor of Minnesota and Minneapolis are saying the right things uh, in, in contrast to past episodes. And actually, the charges have happened pretty quickly. Normally, the flashpoints have been when it was announced the charges wouldn't be brought or there was an acquittal. And I actually worked on the Rodney King case. It can be really harder than it looks to zero in on an entire corpus of evidence, but they they did it here. They've quickly arrested him. And nevertheless, the riots and protests started before even just in the immediate aftermath of the episode. The whole country saw a man losing his life second after second and minute after minute. And I watched it once. And every time it comes on, I run out of the room. This is different, I think, in the sense whoever took that video, God bless them for taking it because Lord knows how many of these things have happened. And we need a second iteration of the civil rights movement. It has to include everybody, everybody, because this country cannot stand if we do not stand for justice and decency. A man crying out. The second time we've seen it, we saw it with with Garner. The same thing. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. What person stands there? And I know that the people watching it, the civilians, were scared this guy could kill them if they did any. They were paralyzed. And this president, to to get to the point that Matt's point, he he is really a clear and present danger. He's a danger on every one of these issues you raise. And I don't say this lightly, because I said I'd serve with three Republican presidents. I got mad at them, but I I never, ever would accuse any of them of not trying to unify the country and save the country. Look what's happening on COVID. Yeah, we're leading the world in the wrong way with the number of deaths, with the way not to do it, with the way for this president who's a child who says, governors, take over. You're responsible. Doesn't give him the money, doesn't give him the help. And as soon as something goes south, because he's yelling masks are, are not masculine or whatever he's saying. Oh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you invited me on the show because this is like mentally good for me yeah. to talk to yeah, you. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting the unvarnished Senator Voxer. Yeah, you are. Harry, you were right that they, they did move fairly quickly to bring charges. But whenever there's this kind of event, excessive use of force, in this case, deadly force by a police officer, I think there are two things that the community wants to see. One, accountability for the officers that acted inappropriately. And two, change or an assurance that there will be change. And it looks like there may be accountability for the officers in this case. But what's missing is any semblance that there will be change. And there obviously needs to be change at a national level. Senator Senator Boxer was getting at that. There's also change at a police force level that the Justice Department is typically responsible for. Justice Departments come in and conduct what are known as pattern and practices investigations into these type of police forces, like the Minneapolis police force that has had repeat incidents of this nature. 
And that's not, not only not isn't happening here, but it hasn't been happening at all in the Trump administration. The Justice Department has basically dismantled that type of investigation of police departments. So while we may get accountability for this one individual officer and maybe eventually for the other officers who were on the scene, there is no prospect at all for change of that police department or for other police departments around this country coming from the federal government. Val Demings, who was previously a a prosecutor before coming to the Congress, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post this morning, basically making this point, the need for proactive and broad change. Let's stick with Trump for a second. He definitely turned on a dime once protests started, and he used the phrase, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which was made famous or infamous by a Florida police chief in the 60s, who was known, among other things, saying, we don't care if we get a reputation for police brutality. You know, it's cynical, but you have to ask, is Trump happy about what's going on now in Minnesota and other cities? Is this a kind of opening for a Southern strategy for 2020 for him? He actually gained a few points in the polls this week and seems to be capitalizing on the terrible unrest in Minneapolis. Yeah, so I think it's a bit of both. I think that this is also, on a third point, just a distraction from the mishandling of COVID-19 by this administration. And this is a new way that he can show that he, or in his mind, is somehow being effective, saying that he's going to send in the National Guard, uh, playing tough guy on Twitter and saying that they're not going to tolerate any kind of rioting without providing really any kind of comfort or any kind of real explanation for how things are going to change. This is just his entire MO. But ultimately, I think that it's very easy to see through him. And I feel like a lot of people in the Black community see through him. It's very obvious that he was not saying when the looting starts, starts, the shooting starts in the sense that it's a factual statement. Like he is now reversing himself on Twitter saying that what I meant was shooting begins when looting starts. There are shootings that happen when looting starts. Everyone knows that it was 2.30 in the afternoon by the time that he came up with that rationale, with that explanation. Twitter had already appended a warning to his tweet and to the White House's subsequent tweet about that comment, saying that it advocated violence. And it took him about, what, 14 hours to come up with a reasonable explanation for what he may have meant. It's just not credible in any sense. So I think this is part of the reason why so many people around him just want him to stay off Twitter and want him to just not comment on these situations because he fans the flames. He's known for advocating for police brutality, frankly. He has stood up in front of an audience of police officers and basically told them that it's cool or it's funny to harm the people that they take into custody. And he has shown himself, for lack of a better word, a racist with his comments about Colin Kaepernick, with his comments about patriotism. This is just not an area where he can provide any kind of real leadership. And I think that that becomes very obvious, even though he is pursuing, of course, the Black vote, which I'll note in 2016, he said the very compelling argument was, what do you have to lose? Well, no one really bought that then either. So it doesn't seem like that's going to change now. 
I agree. And I also wanted to say, I thought, yes, it seems part of his personality, but I don't know, Matt or Senator, do you think that in a way it's a kind of perfect appeal to his base? He's been analogized to the George Wallace of 68 or 72. Do you think that the diehard Trump people who are watching this on Fox News say, and a boy president, when he is so harsh toward the looters and doesn't alloy those statements with anything about the underlying social conditions that breed frustration in the communities of color? Well, I think without doubt, he thinks that it plays to his base to be the tough guy. I agree with Natasha. It's a diversion from everything that he's failing at at the moment. Our fellow citizens are dying hand over fist of COVID and our economy is dying It's interesting because I want to take it way back to when I got involved in politics, it was over the Vietnam War and people were in the streets. This was before my kids were born and and we were young people and we were fighting for peace and justice and all the other things. And guess what happened? A lot of anarchists got in the way of our demonstrations. And so we can't overlook the fact that there are people using it. And so you will see people and who knows who put them there. It could be anyone. We don't know who put these people there. But keep your eye on that problem because you make a point about his being able to say, oh, we can't tolerate this. And it, of course, takes away from the message. The last point I make is this. You asked about a Southern strategy. He doesn't need a Southern strategy. He's got the South state. Here's the danger for him. This isn't something that just fell out of the sky in the dead of night. You can watch this man lying there, helpless, tied down, struggling for air, gasping for air. Nine minutes. Nine minutes. And the suburban women in this country will not stand for it. Now, I can't speak for all of them, but I am telling you, you're going to see Republican women who stand up and say no. I think you are so right, Senator. I think two things about this. One, it's been interesting, I think, because of how powerful the video is to watch Trump be a little all over the place in his response. He's going to end up following his worst possible instincts, tweeting things like shooting looters, because that's where he always goes eventually. But he's also been trying to make some noises about justice for the individual who was murdered. I think he's realized that he's got to try to seem like he wants to do the right thing, although he won't be able to stick with it because he never is. The second thing I'd say, though, is you're right about unrest in the streets being a good message for someone like a George Wallace. But unrest in the streets is not a great message for an incumbent president of the United States. It's a message for a challenger. Running on unrest in a major American city is not something I think that works so well, even for the most cynical, divisive incumbent. That's a really good point. And just to clarify, by the way, by Southern strategy, I didn't mean the South in 2020. I meant the, uh, the coalition of the same political constituencies driven by non-college educated whites that propelled Nixon as a challenger to victory in 1968. Mm. And that in some ways seemed right down the middle for, for Trump. Well, in the Nixon case, it was a big generational divide to the younger people versus everybody else. Sure, listen, he's down in terms of his popularity, in terms of his one-on-one with Joe. So he'll do anything to dirty it up, including charge people, suggesting that his enemies have committed murder. I mean, really. And I mean, this is also escalating in alarming ways. We should also probably note that the CNN crew this morning was arrested while reporting from Minneapolis. And the 
reporter, of course, he was black who was reporting on this and he identified himself clearly as a CNN reporter. There was a whole camera crew, which probably should have been a clue that this was a legitimate journalist and a legitimate operation. And a couple feet away, his white colleague, Josh Campbell, was reporting also for CNN, told the officers that he was reporting for CNN and and was left alone. So it's just so ingrained, I think. It's not only limited to what we're seeing with the riots, but it's expanding into arresting journalists that it's just very alarming what's going on. And the president, of course, didn't say a word about the free speech implications here. The governor, of course, did apologize profusely and said it's on him, but it's really slippery slope that we're watching. Yeah. The whole thing does have a kind of open wound quality. And again, we have to note that there have been protests that have also broken out in 10 cities from northwest to southeast. So there's some possibility that this goes on for a while and even begins to appear similar to the whole 1968 to come back to that year. I know Joe Biden for so many years. And the one thing about Joe that I could say to you, I've seen it on a one-on-one. I have seen it in larger groups. He is a healer. He is a healer. And this the moment has met him in that sense. And he not only knows how to heal, he knows how to empathize. And he is also an example of someone who picked himself up after tragedy, after tragedy, after tragedy, and also overcame, you know, that stutter that he had uh, all those years ago. So I think that's why I come back to the women's vote here, which I feel I can talk to pretty well. I think that most women and, and compassionate men understand the type of person we need to lead us out of this thing, because I think Matt was right when he made the point It's not good for an incumbent to be presiding over a country that's out of control and hurt so deeply. So in many ways, Joe's personality and the way he exudes that empathy is is going to be important in the campaign. All right. I have a feeling that this may not be the last time we discuss this on Talking Feds. But for today, let's move on and go back to D.C., where the Senate is going to be returning after a long break. Now, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, has seemed more interested in confirming judges than in any kind of legislation for the virus. But in the interim, the House did pass a $3 trillion bill aimed especially at relief for state and local governments. Will McConnell's hand be forced and will the Senate have to play ball and try to put together a stimulus bill and go to conference? And the like. I'll jump in since I spent so many years there working with Mitch McConnell and working against him many times. Your point about his interest in confirming judges, that has been his interest forever. And he understands, and you're all the legal beagles, to have this type of confirmation where you have the Federalist Society approved lists. And and this has been what Mitch wants to do. He didn't want to do any legislation except the bare minimum before the virus. But let me say this. I'm sure you're all noticing out here in California, every city, every county and our state are struggling now with budget cuts to the tune of billions in our case and even little small cities. And what does that mean? It means laying off of police officers, laying off of firefighters, cuts to education, and it goes on and on and help for seniors. So my opinion is that's happening in Kentucky. That's happening in every single state. This whole country is in a funk, even though coronavirus cases may be much larger in the larger states and the coastal states and the urban states, the whole economy is wrapped around.
around it. So I don't think they're going to have any choice. They're going to have to sit down and they're going to have to compromise. The question is, what are they going to lay down as the one thing they want to get in return? That's the issue. Yeah, I think they're going to pass a bill for the simple fact that there's a Republican president on the ballot in November and a Republican Senate where the majority is at stake. Yep. The money that they've pumped into the system so far has been somewhat impressive, but it's going to run out well before we get to November. The effects of these cuts at the state and local level is going to bite and you're going to see a huge economic pain uh, right as people are going out to vote. And I said it will happen because there's a Republican president to contrast what I think would happen if there was a Democratic president. And I think if there was a Democratic president, you wouldn't see a dime from Mitch McConnell because he'd want to let the economy crash and let the Democratic president suffer the consequences of that. And why do I think that? Because that's what he did in 2009, when the last time we were in an enormous recession and there was a Democratic president. It it is completely cynical, but I do think he will eventually be forced to the bargaining table because he's just there's just too much at stake politically for him. Matt, you're bringing back my memories, my PTSD. Sorry. (laughs) No, because we had the stimulus bill. It was about $800 And the only reason we got it, we got three Republicans. And that made Mitch McConnell really mad. It's the way we got Obamacare, as you know, barely by the skin of our teeth. And you're right. We want to do infrastructure. We want to do so much more. They put their foot down. We did bail out the banks. But you're right. He won't be able to take the heat with all of these police officers being let go and all the rest of it. And it's all going to go back to haunt Trump, even though Trump has tried so hard to lay it all on to the governors and lay it all on to everybody else. Yeah. And I mean, Republicans have already said that their futures, their political futures are inextricably linked to the president's at this point. So it doesn't seem like they're going to do anything that would cross him or jeopardize their intertwined political futures at this point. One thing I am interested in is Mitch McConnell has said that he's looking at this to be the fourth and final bill that they passed. What the House proposed is about $25 billion for the Postal Service. And as we've seen, Trump has railed against the Postal Service and sees it as a threat to his presidency because of mail-in ballots and mail-in voting, et cetera. So I'll be curious to see how the Senate grapples with that, especially since obviously whatever they do, will have to have a sign off. Natasha, I am so glad you raised the issue of the Postal Service, because again, as someone who ran for office so many times, people really like the Postal Service. They like their mailman and especially the older people who have voted for Trump. They wait for their mail, even in this age of email. It's a lifeline. All I could say is this. It would be shocking to me if on his watch we lose the U.S. Postal Service, which is in the Constitution. I'm really glad you brought that's a sleeper issue and one that, again, I think touches the hearts of suburban women, older people. So there's a lot of people who love the post office. If we took a poll, it would probably be more popular than almost any politician. Picking up on what the senator said a couple minutes ago, Can he get one thing? And McConnell has made clear that the one thing he's going to insist on, his so-called red line, is immunity for businesses against suits by returning workers who contract the virus. I mean, that proposal seems to me almost a caricature of like Republican callousness. And by the way, McConnell himself is standing for re-election in Kentucky I wanted to serve it up to the more politically sophisticated here and ask, is he, McConnell, sort of impervious to the politics or is this actually good politics for him on a retail level? 
this is kind of a nuanced issue. And I, and I realized that by reporting on this big fight over masks that happened during the first negotiations for the first stimulus bill. One of the reasons that apparently what we're told that Republicans were really eager to have this provision written in that would essentially shield companies, hospitals, businesses, et cetera, from these lawsuits and this liability was because it would allow them to have these companies like 3M, for example, make a whole bunch more masks that weren't necessarily N95 approved, like FDA hospital grade masks. And they had framed it as, look, this is going to allow us to get the things that the American people, that workers that we need in order to kind of weather this storm. And by not allowing these companies to have this protections from legal liability, then we are preventing the the necessary equipment, et cetera, from being produced. So I think just speaking to the politics of it, that is how they are spinning it. And that is how, in many cases, they're saying that this is necessary, is that if these companies and these hospitals, et cetera, are not going to abide by these rules and are not going to use this equipment and are not going to produce the PPE, for example, that we need right now, if they're not given these protections. And the Democrats say, well, no, we need to consistently fight for the consumer safety and the consumer rights, et cetera. And that is at the heart, really, of this battle that was emblematic over the masks in the early days. Now, as things start to get a little bit more normalized and as PPE is a little bit less scarce than it was, I think that argument probably becomes a little bit less convincing. Well, Harry, for as long as I was in the Senate and even in the House, it started with Newt Gingrich. The Republican playbook was to shield businesses. If they had irresponsible behavior, they could get away with it. But ever since I got there, They've been trying to shield businesses from any wrongdoing. And we've managed to stop them because otherwise, if people weren't fearful of lawsuits, they would produce cribs that collapsed on the babies. From time to time, we see it happen. The Republicans have always said, oh, we're so litigious and all the rest. And when you really get to look at it, it, none of that holds up. So let me just say this. No one wants to see frivolous lawsuits. That's not right. So if somebody gets COVID from their friend because they went to the beach and then they blame their employer, that would be a frivolous thing. But I think there's a way if they want to take on the notion of frivolous lawsuits and they want to work on that concept and make sure that's strong enough, fine. But if the underlying desire is what it was when I served there, which is just protect the biggest businesses from any responsibility to be safe, that would be very bad. So I think you're going to see some counteroffers back and forth on the issue. So again, it's what is the motivation here? I think it's the old playbook to do something for big business. If I'm right, then the Democrats won't go for it. And they'll go to the notion of how do we make our laws better against frivolous lawsuits, which everyone believes we don't want to see that happen. Although then it'll come down to how ruthlessly and effectively McConnell can play his 50 votes and keep everyone actually on the reservation if that's what they're going for. Okay, I think it's time now for our sidebar. And today we're lucky to have Loudon Wainwright III. Loudon Wainwright is a Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, actor, and composer. In addition to his 23 studio albums, he was the original musician sidekick on David Letterman. That was news to me. He also composes music for movies, including Judd Apatow's Knocked Up, 
and has been himself an actor in several of them. He's going to discuss the concept of prosecutorial misconduct and what remedies might be available when it occurs. What is prosecutorial misconduct and how is it remedied? Prosecutorial misconduct is a broad term used whenever a prosecutor breaks a law or code of legal ethics provision. The Supreme Court described misconduct as overstepping the bounds of that propriety and fairness which should characterize the conduct of such an officer in the prosecution of a criminal offense. Numerous different actions can constitute prosecutorial misconduct, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but rather some representative categories. Many examples of prosecutorial misconduct involve violation of a prosecutor's obligations under Brady v. Maryland to provide the defense with exculpatory information within the government's possession. Prosecutorial misconduct can occur before a trial by misleading a grand jury to produce indictments or during the jury selection process, for example, when prosecutors intentionally select juries based on race. A prosecutor's actions during trial can also constitute misconduct. This can include making racially based remarks in front of a jury, knowingly using perjured testimony in its case, or misstating the facts or law to the jury. Judges possess a wide range of tools to combat prosecutorial misconduct calibrated to the level of seriousness. Minor breaches, such as asking unfairly leading questions or engaging in inappropriate closing argument, may lead a judge to strike the prosecutor's statements and admonish the jury. Where the misconduct had a reasonable probability of affecting the trial, a defendant can be entitled to a new trial. Serious breaches of conduct can result in a prosecutor being referred to the state bar for discipline, including possible loss of license. However, the prosecutors generally cannot be sued even when their actions violate a defendant's constitutional rights. This is because the Supreme Court has held that prosecutors have absolute immunity from liability for their prosecutorial acts. For Talking Feds, I'm Loudon Wainwright. Thank you very much, Loudon Wainwright III. His very full summer schedule has been curtailed by the virus, but you can check at lw3.com for his upcoming concerts. Before our next segment, I just want to take a moment to thank ExpressVPN for supporting this show. Data privacy is very important to me, both personally and as a producer for Talking Feds. And while I used to think that incognito mode solved most issues, I recently found out that even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. That's why, even when I'm stuck at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. And regardless of device, ExpressVPN has you covered. Whether it's your smartphone, tablet, or desktop, just tap one button and you're protected. That's why it's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and more. ExpressVPN secures your privacy and protects your information. 
Visit expressvpn.com slash feds and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. So protect your online activity today with the VPN that we trust to secure our privacy. That's expressvpn.com slash feds. Expressvpn.com slash feds to learn more. Okay, let's move to the Mike Pompeo situation, which is an instance of the continued evisceration of accountability within government in the Trump administration. And here, the firing of Steve Linick, the previous inspector general of the State Department. Pompeo's just been pilloried in the press. Thomas Friedman in the New York Times pinned the label worst secretary of state ever on him, portraying him as a kind of do-nothing toady. We've heard different accounts of why Pompeo wanted the inspector general out, everything from the ridiculous, like little dry cleaning errands for his wife, to really important derogations of duty involving Saudi Arabia and arms sales. Back to you, Natasha. What does your reporting tell you about what Pompeo was being investigated for when they lowered the boom on Steve Linick? There are just so many things <laughs> that are possible that it's hard to pinpoint just one that may have been the final straw for Pompeo. But it seems to be that there were investigations ongoing into the Saudi Arabia arms sale and the emergency declaration that allowed that to go forward and bypass Congress. That seems to have been the really big one. And there were others, of course, the alleged abuse of staffers and of political appointees to carry out errands, etc. We just don't know yet what exactly was the final straw. And I think that it would probably be useful for Steve Linick to the extent that he can to start giving interviews to the press and say, look, this is what may have led to my dismissal. I know that when ICIG Atkinson was fired by Trump, he released a lengthy statement that suggested that he was fired because of the investigations that he was doing that Trump didn't like. So we still need to hear his side of things on this. As for Pompeo, though, this is definitely a pattern of conduct. He is just wherever he's gone, whether it has been a CIA director in the House or now Secretary of State, he has been known to cross lines, for lack of a better word. And I wrote a piece this week about his time as CIA director and how he used the CIA External Advisory Board, which is traditionally something that CIA directors use for national security and intelligence and academic expertise from outsiders to basically grow his political network, which is another charge against Pompeo that has been leveled many times, that he uses these positions of power and influence in order to boost his donor network and prepare for his political ambitions and prepare for a potential presidential run. So this is something that is coming back to bite him now. Pompeo says he didn't even know what he was being investigated for, and he is somehow placing principal blame for his troubles on Senator Menendez of New Jersey. What, what is that all about? So, yeah, he said he didn't know what he's being investigated for, with the exception of one thing, which seems to be the arms sales to the Saudi Arabians. Look, full disclosure, I used to work for Senator Menendez. When he blames it on Senator Menendez, if I worked for, for the senator, if I was the senator, I'd take that as an indication that what I was doing was having an impact. Because when you see the target of an investigation react that strongly, it means you're really getting under their skin. Look, I, I think the lid is about to be blown off of this scandal in a huge way. The House and Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senate, where Rank Menendez is the ranking member, 
announced this week that next week they're going to conduct interviews in this investigation. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the first interview is going to be of Linick himself. And he's probably, uh, or at least I hope, is going to answer exactly what he was investigating. And I suspect those committees will tell us and we'll find out what it was that Pompeo decided was so worrisome that it was worth taking the politically risky step of firing an inspector general. And, and Natasha talked about this being an enforced error. I I think that's right. I think Pompeo is a very smart guy, but is also incredibly arrogant and thought he could get away with this. And he probably thought he could get away with it because the president has been getting away with it. I think the president, since the Mueller investigation, has decided that the political cost of obstructing investigations, of refusing to turn over documents, of firing inspectors general is less than the political cost of complying with those investigations and then having the results be known to the the American public. And Pompeo thought he could do it too. The difference is not everyone gets to play by the same rules as Trump, for better or for worse. And I think Pompeo is going to find that this is going to be a scandal that's going to stick with him long after this administration. And that's a problem because he's a guy who has clear presidential ambitions. It's true that in other instances, and we've had a raft of them, mainly on Friday nights, a firing of IGs, you, you refer to them as an unforced error or a big risk, but we've had four or five go down, and Glenn Fine resigned this week after having been pushed to the side, and he was as established and prestigious an IG as they come. I wonder whether Trump has succeeded in making this the new normal so it actually just is a yawn to people outside of D.C. Well, it's not a yawn to his state. And he's kind of the star of his state. Well, the star is tarnished. And when you get Chuck Grassley involved in saying, why are we firing all these inspectors general? That's a good thing. I've worked with him since Lord knows when I was in the house on inspectors general and making sure that whistleblowers are protected, et cetera, et cetera. So even it was too much for him. It took him a while, though. He kept his counsel and, and let Trump get away with it a few times. Yeah, I don't think Trump's shamelessness is necessarily a transferable political asset. He's kind of this walking dumpster fire with kind of so many scandals going on to your point, Harry, when, when there's a new scandal, it just kind of falls in line with the rest of them. But that's not true for someone like Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo is just a traditional politician and a scandal sticks with him in a way that we've seen they don't necessarily for the president. I'm trying to think of how to get a walking dumpster fire on a T-shirt. This would be really good. <laughs> All right. Hey, we are out of time, except we still have uh, a few minutes for the final feature on Talking Feds of Five Words or Fewer, in which all of us try to answer a question from a listener in Five Words or Fewer. So the question today comes from Susan Early. She asks, can Congress do anything to stop Trump from firing IGs whenever he feels like it? Yes, if Senator Grassley leads. Raise the cost, but no. I have two. I'm not really sure if they're five words, but GOP can not confirm nominees and GOP can threaten to defund, but probably neither will happen. (laughs) 
I want to amend my answer in, in the wake of Natasha's and say, that's a good point. They can, but won't. <laughs> exactly. You get Natasha 10 more words say, now. Yeah, a- they can, but will not. <laughs> the reason I said if Grassley leads is it becomes very hard to stand on the other side if Grassley decides to do something about it. I'm telling you, I've seen I've seen it. But will he do it? He might, because Joni Ernst seems to be having a hard race there. And I so there's so much going on, you know, underneath all of this. And by the way, Harry, thank you for inviting me. I've had a wonderful time with all three of you. It was so good, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, but I get my answer, too. Oh. I'll give my pointy-headed lawyer answer, which is depends on courts, probably not. <laughs> thank you very much again to Senator Boxer, Matt, and Natasha. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Or on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters to thank them for paying $5 a month to help us with the cost of this podcast. There are right now on Patreon three really excellent segments having to do with the situation in Minnesota and nationwide, a bird's eye view from the editor of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, an account with Steve Vladek of the legal issue of the possible use of the military, and a discussion with Lawrence Middleton, former chief of the criminal division of the L.A. U.S. Attorney's Office and a member of the trial team in the Rodney King case to discuss some of the challenges in the Chauvin case. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Justin Wright is our editor. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sam Trachtenberg and Ayo Osobamiro. Andrea Carla Michaels is our consulting producer. Thanks very much to Loudon Wainwright III for explaining prosecutorial misconduct. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.